Talk, Season 3 of the Telly Award-winning podcast. We've got the touch. We've got the power. When all hell's breaking loose, we'll be riding the eye of the storm. I am Ryland Grant, screenwriter, Ringle Award-winning creator of fine comics like Aberrant, Banjack, Suicide Jockeys, and now Fashing Origins. I cannot pronounce words today. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... David Avalone, uh, comics writer, TV writer, film guy, and uh, Comic-Con 2022 survivor. Yeah, I am still limping across that finish line. We should uh, maybe talk a little we bit should, about we, that. Yeah, we should compare our uh, pedometer notes. I I averaged 14,000 steps a day that week. And the Monday and Tuesday of that week, I barely stood up. So the Wednesday through Sunday, I was probably do, knocking out a solid 20,000 steps a day. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I put a Facebook post on. I did 58,000 steps in I two and a half that. days. That's why I was thinking about it. Yeah, and you know, I think it was, it was the equivalent of like twenty six miles, and yeah. um, and I'm old, and I have joint pain, and yeah, uh, yeah I was, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm Next. still, I basically crashed for two days. You know, I mean, this is yeah. the first day that I've been able to actually carry on a conversation with people. So yeah, next next con, I am going to do everything in my power to be on in a hotel on the correct side of the train tracks. As much as I love saving money, I. I just never want to cross Front Street or whatever the hell that's called ever again. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. it, it's it's it takes it takes a lot out of you. And yeah, uh, I, I I think getting like four or five people together uh, that were there might be a good show, where we can just be like, hey, this is all the shit we did wrong this year. Let's make a list. Yeah, and then next year, yeah. a few weeks before or whatever, I, we'll consult. I'm constantly list. upping my, but I I I have a handful of hotels that I go to that don't necessarily. Uh, participate in the lottery. Yeah. This year, I always look the week after Comic Con for a new hotel room. Yeah. This year, every only one of them was available for that week, and it is this flea bag I stayed at once in Old Town, probably a mile and a half, two miles from the convention center. Wow. I believe it was asking for six thousand dollars for the five yeah. days. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the hotels are nice for obvious reasons, but like yeah. there are there are uh, you know there are so many unoccupied high rises in San Diego. Yeah. And so the um, the Airbnb game is yeah I haven't looked into that, which maybe and, good. Yeah. So you know, me and me and a few uh, friends of the show, you know, David Pepos, um, Carl sure. Nappy, and uh, Steve Prince, we we crashed there. So that was good. Um, I mean, it was amazing how many people I saw, but how many people I didn't see or didn't get yeah. to connect with. I mean, like friend of the show, John Lehman, I was literally five feet away from yeah. him probably seven times at the con and we never said hello to each other. It ends up being this thing where, um, you know, you get home and you got to send these people a Facebook message being like, Hey man, sorry, I missed you. Yeah. I know we were in the same room 15 times, but, uh, it definitely happens. Do you have anything to plug before we introduce our guest? I I am pretty much good. Go go to the Immortal Studios uh, uh, website, immortal-studios.com, and check out Foshing Origins. Uh, there has been a big announcement since, uh, I don't know, our last show, two shows ago. Whenever we were live, um, Dynamite uh, uh, Comics, um, your publisher, uh, has, publisher. Just picked up, has just picked up the entire uh, Immortal Studios uh, line. So. Yeah. Headlining that is Fashing Origins, and so you and I are label mates now. I'm very excited. Yes, that's, so. uh, that's good stuff, and I think it was a very smart move uh, on Nikki's part at Dynamite. Yeah. And uh, I my I don't have anything dropping. August 10th, I've heard, is when Elvira 
in Horrorland number three will drop. But let us get to our guest. Please welcome Ray Chow. Yeah. Hello. Hey, everybody. Hey, guys. Howdy, howdy. Howdy. Tell, tell the kids a little bit about yourself. Cool. Yeah. So my name is Ray Chow. I am one of the founders and partners of Mythopia. We are a purveyor of original worlds through comics and games. Uh, I have a Kickstarter running for Skies of Fire, the collected edition, which is our first ever comic series that we launched in 2014. Um, and I also write Glow. I publish games like The Wild Sea, Tabletop RPGs, and just a general all-around nerd, entrepreneur, creator, artist, do-it-all, Jack of all trades type of uh, creator. Nerd, nerd, nerd entrepreneur is a great. Uh, is I, a great I mean, I'm a big believer in portmanteau, so I'm going to go with nerdpreneur. Nerdpreneur. There's got to be a way maybe to make that work. Uh, and the the full series so far is two volumes. I'm looking at it right. Uh, one is 160 pages. Second one is 192 pages. Is that right? Correct. And that comprises of eight issues that we published between the years 2014 and 2021. And those eight issues were the original series that we set out to publish back in 2014 when we launched our first Kickstarter based off of an original screenplay. My partner Vince and I wrote um, that once we finished, we were you know, 23, 24 years old and thought nobody is ever going to buy this screenplay that's millions hundreds of millions of dollars i was gonna say it's that expensive. is a that is an expensive looking screenplay holy shit the art i have to say the art is stunning uh, if you go to the the kickstarter and take a look at it the art is amazing and yeah that is an expensive script <laughs> yeah it's it was an expensive comic too but definitely slightly less expensive than you know feature <laughs> films so yeah. that's the route we just decided to take and eight years later we're still standing so see I, I yeah i didn't know it was a film first you are an nyu guy no yes i graduated the nyu tisch school of the arts undergrad in film and television in 2010. nice yeah i, I used I, I used to do summers there it was amazing um getting getting to live uh i i believe i was at fifth avenue and 10th street um and you know i think i was paying about six hundred dollars uh a month to you know live in this building get all my meals paid for i was directly across the street from ethan hawk and uma thurman and betsy johnson i would see janine garofalo at the uh at the um you know the coffee shop down the street it was um it, it was definitely a way to do new york when you were young and uh, you know not a way anyone could do it now obviously but um yeah. great uh great experience but um oh. but what were we gonna say yeah the best of times the worst of times you know being <laughs> young in new york it's before but the best time is before your dreams are crushed right because that, that city has that effect on people oh, yeah so the first couple of years are always really great where you're like yeah i'm living life i'm in the big the big apple the big city and yep. then you just kind of get a little cynical and then it kind of like bleeds into you. And then uh, yeah, one, of the, history. one of the best New York versus L.A. things I've ever heard. And I think it's true. And I, I don't I don't think there's a positive or negative to these things. I just think they're true. New York has a personality and you either grow into that personality or you leave. L.A. is I would say L.A. is like liquor, whatever personality you got buried deep inside of you it's going to come right out, <laughs> you know, and, you know, for some people, that personality is douchebag, but, uh, you know, uh, not necessarily for everyone. But uh, did you move here right after NYU? 
No, I actually was born and raised here. So I oh, okay. I was born in Pasadena and uh, I was raised in Arcadia, where, which I where I currently reside. So it was a bit of a homecoming. And sort of to add on to that, I definitely found myself really cynical after living in New York for a couple of years for school and afterwards. And when I came back, actually, I, I didn't want to come back. I kind of was forced back because I like I just had no job prospects. I was like young, starving, broke, and I was doing PA work for like 75 bucks a day, moving Oof. trucks and doing all sorts of odd bits and ends to to just try to scrape by. And eventually I just kind of the, the city kind of spit me out. But it was a very serendipitous thing because when I came back home to L.A., I realized how unhappy I was, um, you know, it was like a big fog lift. And I was like, wow, I just I feel so much better about life just not being uh, in New York. So yeah. that was uh, that was a big, big moment for me where I realized, oh, I've been depressed for, for for a long time and just didn't really know it. And it took me getting out of that environment to realize Mm. how much that place was affecting my mental health it, it, there's there's an interesting psychology just in choosing nyu because i mean you grew up with you know maybe like four of the five best film schools in the world like in your backyard and then you chose like the one school in the top five that is all the way across the country <laughs> yeah yeah, so yeah go, go ahead there's a funny story behind that too so it, it was kind of one of those destiny things like when i was like you know a punk ass 13 14 year old um, I was a bad student. Um, I was just like, you know, one of those lazy nerds. And uh, but I but I always said to my parents and to myself, like, I want to go to NYU one day. And they took me to the East Coast to, you know, to visit to see some sites. And one of the places we went was New York. And I took a tour of NYU. And I remember when I took the tour, I was like, this place sucks. Like, why would I ever want to go to school there? Right. And then again, I, I actually went to community college first. So I went to Pasadena Community College for my first two years um, because I wanted to go to film school. I made it a goal to go to film school at the end of my junior year. And I was like, all right, I don't have the portfolio for that. So I guess I'll go to community college first and build myself up that way. And um, again, when I went in my freshman year to visit some friends, I thought the same thing. I was like, this school kind of sucks. Like, why would I want to go? But I had already applied that year because you're allowed to apply as a transfer as a freshman. And I got rejected within uh, four weeks of sending my application, <laughs> like four weeks. Like, like I was amazed, you know, I was like, wow, this is, uh, that, that was not fast at all. And I think it was still a paper application back then, right. Where right. I had to actually post it. Um, so I was, I was, I was deeply cut by, by that. And my second, application uh my sophomore year transferring again i did my myu application last i did my ucla film school one first because i really wanted to get in there I, I tried so hard on that um then my usc then lmu then chapman all the all the la film schools right and i did my myu application as an afterthought and i wrote my personal statement about how uh motivating getting a rejection after like three weeks was and and i wrote that 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 essay and you know like 20 minutes and it just kind of was like stream of consciousness just flew out of me right and i guess it made an impact because that was the only film school i got into so there you go that's why i went to, that's why i went to myu over that's any funny. other i think i think they were they were probably flattered that you were so heartbroken over their rejection I think that's, <laughs> the, that's like oh he really does want me uh, yeah, I it's the funny thing is I always had the plan of moving to LA after college. I grew up in Jersey. Uh, but I I wanted to take steps and going to UCLA or USC, not that I probably could have gone in, but going to one of those did not seem like baby steps. That seemed like deep end of the ocean. And it also seemed like going to college in the film industry 
rather than learning how to be an independent filmmaker first. And then, you know, when I would find out like that you needed to like submit a script and then they tell you whether or not they let you make a film at those film schools, I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to have studio executives in my college. I, I don't want that experience. So I went to the most hippy dippy, ridiculous place I could go, which was Bard. And I think one of the reasons I was so enamored of it after seeing friends do that horrible application and wait dance, Bard has a thing where you drive up, you spend a day there, you hang out, they talk to you at the end of the day, they say, you're in, you're out. And I was like, I want the not waiting for the mail thing. I want the tell me and I'll get in my car and drive home and come back next year. I won't. And I got in, uh, it's called the immediate decision plan. And I got in on that and I was told my mom, I'm like, so if we get financial aid, I'm going to Bard. If we don't get financial aid, I'm moving to Los Angeles and, you know, doing it the super hard way. It, it, it's a, it's amazing what a rejection does to you in terms of the motivation. I mean, I, I, I think you either, you know, I think it either crushes you or, or, or you, you know, it turns you into a Phoenix, you know? Um, and, and that was certainly what it, what it did for, it sounds like that's what it did for you, Ray, but it, it's what it did for me also. I think, I mean, I did my four years at the university of Michigan and, you know, I, I went there originally to study political science and, you know, was disgusted with it and had to find myself. And I spent those four years and eventually graduated with a triple major in film, theater, and art history. And so sort of found what I wanted to do. Um, but I applied to films, you know, graduate film schools after that. And, um, and you know, uh, I mean, it was UCLA, uh, NYU, um, and, um, and, and AFI. I don't think I applied to USC, I think, because you needed to take the GRE and I just refused to take the GRE. <laughs> but, um, so, so there's that, but, but here's the thing is so, so I apply and I had this like crew that I ran with. There was my cinematographer, my producer um, at Michigan and they applied to all these places and they all got into places. Um, I was a finalist at every school. I had to fly out, interview all of that stuff. But then I was rejected last minute by, by all these places, waitlisted by a couple, didn't work out. Now I was fucking leveled, you know, and it, particularly it's like, I mean, they're, you know, it's like really like, like I, I made, I wrote and directed all those films, <laughs> all those films got all these other people in, like, I didn't get in. Are you kidding me? Um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's like, it's like when um, you see like an Oscar movie and it gets nominated for like best picture and all the actors get nominated and the cinematographer gets nominated. And then like the director doesn't get nominated for some reason. It's like, like what, what is happening here? So, so I had a year, I moved out to LA with them and they're all going to school. Um, and I, I moved out to LA with nothing, you know, um, and found a way to make money. But I took that year and I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And I wrote like three scripts that eventually ended up breaking me in the business. Um, and the next year I got into AFI and I did the whole, you know, AFI directing thing, uh, afterwards. So there's a, a, a happy ending, uh, if you want to call it that at the end of it. But, um, but, but, but here's the thing is like, I was, I was livid about it. And, and like you, I took those three rejection letters and I framed them. I mean, I, I had them professionally framed and I had <laughs> them, I had my, my writing desk or whatever. And th those, those letters for years were sitting, staring me right in the face at my writing desk. And I would just look up and it pissed me off. And, and you know, you, you want to quit early, you look up, you see those letters it, it stokes the flames a little bit. And, and that was a really important thing. And, you know, I think, I mean, at some point, I don't know, I think we moved out of our apartment into our house and, and the letters never, never made it back up. Um, 
but it was really important. If I didn't have that rejection to kind of piss me off and kind of propel me to the next thing, I wouldn't have had it. If I wouldn't have had that year off to write these three scripts that, I mean, one of those scripts won the final draft big break competition. They got me my first agent at CAA. They got me my, my first job <laughs> writing for Penelope Cruz and all these things. And, and then, then I had a career. If I had gotten into film school right off the bat, who knows where the hell I'd be, you know? I mean, I just don't, yeah. I don't know. It, it builds character rejection, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and you, yeah. And you, never, you know, and that's the thing you never, ever know. Um, one of my first jobs in LA was at a post-production facility in, uh, for Warner Brothers. It was started as Lormar, then Warner Brothers bought them. And it was a, it was a career path of sorts. It wasn't a career path to anything I particularly wanted to do, wanted to do. But my immediate supervisor kind of screwed me over. And then it's hard to describe, but he let me, he let me accidentally find out that he had screwed me over. And at his farewell party, because we both quit around the same time, he was like, this isn't for you, man. You're not a post-production executive. You're not a post-production supervisor that is not a good use of your time literally he had he had they had given me a promotion with a shitty raise and he sent me into his office to get a tape off his desk and under the tape was a memo he had written about how they had screwed me out of three hundred dollars on my raise and it was his way of going you won't be happy doing this yeah. <laughs> because this Wait, is what even your friends are going to be forced to do to you in the corporate world of studio filmmaking. So get out and do something else. And it was a weird, you know, it's one of those weird, like a mentor kicking you in the teeth to teach you something. Yeah. Now you're not cut out for this, go make independent films, <laughs> you know, but uh, at the time it did not strike me that way. Um, Wait, I so, so are, are we talking about um, like bad Hollywood jobs now or moving on from films? Yeah, 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 fire away, fire away. Any bad Hollywood job yeah. story you want. I, we, yeah. Me and Ryland have a million of them. Yeah. So um, after moving back to L.A., uh, I worked for this, this, uh, this god-awful man named uh, Emilio Ferrari. Um, and he had a office on Sunset called Entertainment 7. And he was one of those, you know, fake Hollywood cats, right? First of all, this guy's Indian. Straight up, he's Indian, but he's pretending to be Italian, right? <laughs> like, it's right. just the most, you meet the most bizarre people in Hollywood. Um, but he, he has his office and, you know, he's trying to get a bunch of stuff off the ground. And uh, the, what, what he really did was, uh, was, was movie rights, right? So he sold, you know, like C-level sci-fi movies to Thailand for like $30,000, right? He right. acquired the rights and he would, he would do the foreign rights on stuff. And, and so he made a, made a good living doing that stuff, going to film markets. But of course, he, like everybody else, is trying to be a big time Hollywood producer. And I was a, you know, recent grad during like, you know, bad recession time, like just scraping on by trying to, trying to, get a foothold on, on anything so i'm working for this guy he's paying me a stipend he's not even paying me minimum wage i think i was getting paid like 150 bucks a day or something like that um and he eventually like so nerd entrepreneur right he he eventually has me write his business plan so i wrote his entire business plan for him the entire like 27 page document or whatever for for entertainment seven and then after that he has me line produce his his reality tv pilot so he has me coordinating. It's called Pageants versus Pinups, and it features uh, playmates versus pageant girls, basically, right? And all sorts of competitions. And like this guy, this guy was deeply connected with, uh, you know, uh, Miss the Miss USA organization, you know, Trump's Miss USA pageant. 
And he's just one of those sleaze bags that would give them a lot of money so he could judge and party with the girls and, you know, do coke with them afterwards. Like he's right. one of those guys. Um, but he had a lot of he, he knew he had all these contacts with with these girls, these poor, poor girls in, in L.A. all trying to make it. So it was my job to coordinate all like, you know, 60 of them basically over like seven days of shoots which I did um, and got yelled at a lot for doing um, and basically organized everything, which I did. Um, and then on top of that, he wanted me to drive the 13 pass van. Right. And so like I was, I was busting my ass, like producing this, this pilot for him. Um, and I'm waking up at like four 30 in the morning to drive his 13 pass van so I can do transportation for all, for all of these people. Um, and I'm like just dying out here and he's, he's, he's yelling at me. And uh, one day, um, he, like, I just go to his office and I'm like, Hey, like, I want to get paid for driving the van. Like, you know, I know that that's a job that, you know, people get paid for. And like, it's not right, right that you're having me do it on top of all this other stuff. So I want to get paid for that. He fired me instantly. He's like, get the hell out of my office. Uh, oh, wow. and that, yeah, that I, I lasted like eight months in there. And that was my first and only Hollywood job basically after that. And after that experience, I was like, screw this. I want to do my own thing. I want to, I want to make my own work and I don't care like what it takes to, to do that, but I'll, I'll find a way to do that as opposed to doing this. Um, so yeah, that, that was my after film school experience in, in Hollywood. Good times. Oh, I had so many of those. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I ghosted one of my first jobs after uh, Lorimar is I ghost wrote a couple of movies that were on cable thousands of times and ended up sort of kind of ghost directing them as well. And I was getting $400 a week. I mean, this is early 90s money, so it's not quite, you know, inflation, it's about the same as your $150 a day. But it's a, the funniest thing about that story is decades later, the director had died. His producer wife was still alive and she wanted to interview me about the process of those projects. And she was like, will you come do these interviews? I was like, yeah, sure, I'll talk about it. And she was like, I was looking at the credits of the movies and it's weird, you're not credited as the writer on any of them. And I'm like, you literally forgot that you screwed me over. 30 years later, you can't even remember. Like, you're like, oh, but you wrote these, right? We know that. It's like, yes, we all know that now. So, of course, I went to the IMDb and said, okay, I'm adding my uncredited writer credits to these because I, if she's admitting it, then I guess the cat's out of the bag. But it's uh, the I, stuff we do and the stuff that people... And this guy, we we stayed friends over all the years, even with various falling outs. But this guy lives in a, this guy and his wife live in a mansion on the top of a hill in Beverly Hills. And after we finished making two movies together, he's like, I want to sit down and write premises for four more movies. I'll go sell them to Columbia's TriStar and we'll make the movies. I said, great. We sat down, we banged out four premises for movies. He said, okay, go home and, you know, type those up. And I said, sure. What am I getting paid for this? And he said, well, I don't have the money from TriStar yet. And I looked around his living room and said, sell a piece of furniture, Andy. <laughs> what, the, what the hell are you? And like, I wasn't asking for 20 grand. I was like, give me 300 bucks to write a couple of pages for you. Like, you know, money, you money that's in your couch in quarters, <laughs> like in hundred dollar bills that people have dropped. Uh, so that was kind of the end of our professional relationship, but just that whole thing where someone who's a millionaire says, well, I, I can't yeah. pay you 300. 
I only want to give you Columbia TriStar's money. I don't want to give you my money. And I have discovered that about working with rich people. Rich people always want to introduce you to other rich people who will then give you the money. They never want to be the rich person that's getting taken, you know, but it's crazy. But the thing to bring over to all back around what I did not have in the 90s. You see where this go is going or Kickstarter. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a, let me set the table here a, a little bit because Ray, you know, I, I mean, I think we've been circling each other to have this conversation for for a long while. I mean, we just, you know, we, we've, um, you know, we've known each other from the con circuit or whatever, and we have a lot of mutual friends and um, and 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 Charlie Stickney, who you know we we like to call the Kickstarter king or whatever, and we you know he's he's a really close friend of mine. We've had him on the show any number of times, but if we call Charlie the Kickstarter king, he's like, no, 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 no. Ray is the Kickstarter king. <laughs> so so that that is high praise, you know, uh, 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 you know, the king calling king, right? Um, so. I have been wanting for the longest time to talk to you about crowdfunding and how you sort of blaze this trail. I mean, you're, you're, you're an OG on the, uh, on the medium and, and how I put it to Avalone, how I put it to you back in the green room is, well, we have had plenty of people on uh, who, who waged one great Kickstarter campaign or a handful of great Kickstarter campaigns, but you have made a, you've made a career, you've made an entire business out of, uh, out of crowdfunding. And, and it started out with a comic book and then you moved into tabletop games and, and all, and all of these other things. Um, and it has been so impressive to see you build this. I mean, I hate to use the word, but almost like empire, you know, there on Kickstarter um, and cultivate this, this really rabid uh, uh, loyal fan base. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess, you know, I guess, we'll start with kind of the origin story. I mean, you, you, I think you brought us to the precipice already. You said, look, I, I, I tried the film business thing and it was horrible. Uh, uh, you know, we, I think we all have that story. And then, you know, you, and then again, like it knocked you down and you got back up and you did this. And so, so let's talk about it a little bit. Yeah. So after that horrible experience uh, working for that, that, that wannabe producer. Um, I took a little bit of time for myself. I uh, I went back to Taiwan for about a year. I just sort of did some studying out there, studied uh, Chinese, um, like families out there. And so, you know, I was getting in touch with my roots and I did a lot of writing then and, you know, a lot of soul searching, kind of figuring out like, okay, what do I want to do? Like I'm a 20, you know, whatever film school graduate, the economy's crap right now. This was like circa 2011. Um, I just got fired from my first job out of college. And like, I, you know, what, what, what do I really want to do? And, and um, what is my path forward? And so I, I was really good at two things in, in film school. Um, in terms of being on set, I was a producer, right? So, you know, I, I, I produced films, I, I budgeted, I scheduled, I did all of that. Um, and my main of, majority of my course load was was geared towards that. And, and you know, I thought that a lot of film school classes were kind of kind of BS. But like what what I really, really enjoyed was um, some of the law stuff, right? Like the the mm. business, the, the legal entertainment, legally stuff like that. And then the scheduling, the budgeting and all, all that stuff I found really helpful in some of my producing classes, how to put together a prospectus, which came in real big handy when it came to Kickstarter. So Kickstarter came about, I think, in 2010, roughly, maybe a little bit earlier, but but I knew about it right from the beginning because of film school, right? Because it was a natural, I was in it's my senior year at the time, and it just seemed like a natural 
way to to fundraise. And by the way, I'm so sorry about my my glitchy camera. Everybody, it's a long story, but I hope to get it fixed soon. Um, but so I knew about Kickstarter, and I knew I knew knew it was a platform that that could provide some funding. And I wrote this script with Vince, my partner. Um, and you know, one of the big monkeys off of my back uh, was. You know, I consider myself a great writer too, or or a writer uh, above average writer, I should say, and that's always was my opinion of myself, right? In film school, you have the visual cats, right? The people who who are directors who are really good with images, and you got the people who are really good at story. And in my opinion, if you're good with both, then that makes you super talented, right? That's like that's that's who the really talented people are. I was definitely more in the story camp, um, and the big monkey off my back though was that I hadn't finished the feature. Right. And I'm sure all of you, like when, when you were writing that first feature, you're like, oh, wow, 120 pages. How am I going to get through that? Um, and Vince, my partner, uh, in contrast, he, he's always been a grinder. Right. And he's always been able to crank out stuff and, and has always been super optimistic about everything. Um, and so he just he just cranked and cranked and cranked. And I was corresponding with him. He was in London. I was I was in Thai, Taipei and he sent me the script for Skies of Fire and I was sending him notes back and forth. And eventually I kind of hopped on board that and I was like, hey, Vince, can I can I do a draft? So he let me hop on board as a co-writer and I did drafts back and forth with him um, and that helped me get over the hump. And then I wrote my own uh, first feature after that. And I was like, thank you, Vince. Like I, you really gave me the courage to, to complete that because I don't know if I would have been able to do it myself. Um, and afterwards, we thought right away, all right, let's turn it into a comic, right? Because, you know, expensive movie. And so we looked into that. We looked into how to do it. It seemed like it was pretty similar to, to making a film, basically, just pared down and smaller budget. So we went about looking for artists and we found the art team for it all through DeviantArt, all through job postings, Pablo Pepino and Brian Valenza. We got the first five pages done. We were like, great, that's what we need for an image comics and a Dark Horse comics submission, right? So we were getting ready to submit those packages. And um, I don't know how, but I, I was checking Kickstarter at the time because I knew they had a common category. And I saw that there were some 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 successes there. Right. And I was like, OK, this looks promising. Um, and the more I, I researched it, the more I thought, OK, this, this seems like it could be a pathway because it's not like Kickstarter takes any of your rights. So if we're successful here, we may be able to parlay that into you know a publishing contract, which which was my goal. Um, and then Comixology was coming up at the time. They just announced Comixology Submit, and you know people were really excited about that. And like, hey, maybe this is this is a new platform for self-published comics. So the plan was to do the first issue, um, get it done, submit that to the publishers, then submit that to Comixology Submit. Hope to get an audience that way, and then build from there. And that that's that's sort of all we had in mind when we launched that first Kickstarter. Um, and it just sort of was really successful and beyond our wildest imagination, uh, which mm -hmm. at the time was 525 backers and, and about 15 grand once, once it was done. Um, and, and that, that felt like a very transformative moment. And it felt like, Oh wow, we have enough to do this comic enough to make the second comic even. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the little Let me interrupt for just a second was what was the content of that first Kickstarter? Was it 20 pages, 40 pages, a hundred pages? What were you raising money for? five pages we had five pages done that was the mm -hmm. pitch uh the way i structured the the kickstarter page was based off of um a prospectus basically so i learned how to write a prospectus for short films to fundraise <laughs> in in at nyu and that was one of the things i was always really good at you know a little slight graphic design skills making you know doing pitches 
all business plans, that sort of stuff. So I, I, you know, structured it like that. We have five pages complete. We have the original five pages on the preview page. Um, Vince cut together a video and, you know, we went to film school. So like we had some experience doing that. And it was like kind of docu-film style, Ken Burns, you just use the images, right? Use the comic to, to sell sell it. And that, mm -hmm. that was always our, our, our principle here. Like if, if you look at our work, it's super detailed, right? Like we have really excellent artists and artwork. Um, and that's sort of by design. Like we always wanted to make like the best possible comic we could, including uh, aesthetically. So we knew we had that. We knew the pages were good. Um, we have five pages and our, our goal was to raise the funds to produce the rest. So the other 20, 20 pages or so, I think, mm -hmm. for the first issue, like total 25, 26 pages. In addition to a small print run, we were just going to print on demand, whatever we, whatever the demand was, right? With however many people wanted it, we would do a uh, kablam, I think was what we were looking at at the time to, to print on demand at like, you know, five bucks a unit or something like that. And we'd be like, all right, we're, we're selling them for 15. We can print them for five and we'll be okay doing that. And then, uh, and then go from there. And then we got enough to do, you know, all of that plus, plus do a print run of a thousand. We were like, okay, we have enough money to, to throw. It'll be the same price, right? Like we have about 300 people who wants issue number ones. If we do that on demand, that'll be the same price as doing a thousand offset. So we might as well do a thousand offset. So mm -hmm. we did that. We had enough money to, um, go to a comic-con. So we were like, let's go to New York comic-con. It's like 400 bucks at the time for a small press table. So we did that and that set us, that gave us a deadline too, because we didn't have any of this stuff done. Right. So like we had five pages and we were like, all right, we had a deadline to meet. And if we don't get to New York comic-con, then we're toast. And that was great because it really pushed us to complete the comic. And uh, it really pushed us to explore other options besides, um, you know, what was out there. So, you know, Kablam, we had heard about in terms of printing. Print Ninja was starting up around that time. We were going to go with Print Ninja for the longest time. But then uh, in our estimates, we forgot about Golden Week um, at the time. So it ended up being like a, a three-month turnaround as opposed to a one-month turnaround that we were right. that we thought. So we were like, wait, that's not going to line up. Like, you're com we're, we're not going to get the books in time. So that forced me to really stretch and look for printers. And I had to look for... The language of printers or learn the language of printers um and that was that was really beneficial down the line because i was like okay i'm looking for comic printers right now but there's only so many people advertising themselves as comic printers but if i look for printers mm -hmm. then everybody then that opens up the market and we ended up going with you printing for that first book because of their quick turnaround time because of the localization huge company right all over the all over the country um yeah. but it was so close i i got the books on that tuesday on the Tuesday of Comic-Con and yeah. I flew out basically the next morning with, with the books <laughs> and then yeah. uh, Comic-Con started on Thursday. Like that's how close it was <laughs> for, for that show. Um, but yeah, all of that stuff like pushed me to learn about printing um, and that's benefited me tremendously because then I could talk to people about printing and, and I learned like, okay, this is the terminology. This is what I need to look for. Um, and I think in general, like even in film school, so like I was kind of a generalist, like I took a lot more producing classes than anything else, but I took a sound design class. I took a camera class. I took, um, you know, editing classes. I, I wanted to learn everything, right? I wanted to learn every aspect of film and figure out how it all fit together. And I wanted to know enough about each aspect where I could talk to the people who were like specialists and I could talk, speak their language. Right. And everybody advises you not to do that. Right. Especially if you want to be employable after film school, they say like, you know, learn one, one trade and get into that, learn sound, learn lighting, learn 
cameras and and get into all that but i i did the complete opposite i, I took the jack of all trades approach so you know on set i was like you know second cameraman one day i mostly aided and produced but like when i was helping friends out i would be like second assistant cameraman i would gaff i would i would hold the boom i, I would do do all sorts of stuff and, and then the same thing with the classes as well I, I just went broad um and i'm glad that i did in hindsight because what it taught me was um you need to learn the language right if if the the way that that i work is that like i know enough about most things with regards to production publishing where i can talk the language where i can talk to the specialist and, and i can like really and they, they'll respect me for it right because i can speak their language i i speak their lingo um and i know enough about the technical aspects where i can talk to them on that level and to try mm -hmm. and like maximize that right and that's worked out really well for me um in in talking to to printers and talking to other manufacturers and talking to layout people and to talking to artists, all sorts of things, right? Like I can, they, I can always talk to them on, on, on a certain level, right. That is, that is a little bit above like layman level. And, and that's helped me, um, figure out things in, in my career and also get people on board to working on my projects in, in my career. Well, and it, it also, honestly, it helps you, it keeps you from getting cheated. Yeah. Uh, if you if you don't know, I took the same approach you did, not in film school, but in career. If you ever get bored, go look at my IMDb page. I'm in almost every category. I have at least one. I have sound mixing credits. I have AD credits. I And, you know, I remember once when I was in AD, a uh, gaffer came up to me and said, it's going to take us six, four hours to hang these lights. And I said, it's going to take you 90 minutes. And two hours from now, you're going to come to me and want to pat on the back for doing it faster than your original estimate and can we just jump to the part where you do it in 90 minutes and don't lie to me about how long this shit takes because i was a lighting guy for years and i i'm looking at the equipment i'm looking at the room the estimate is two hours not four hours and you know it's uh it's good you know that's an obnoxious example but it's just good to know how things work the number of directors who get out of film school having learned nothing about talking to an actor uh, I did theater work in college and my film school friends were like, why are you stage managing something at the theater? I'm like, one, I want them to owe me the use of costumes and props. You know, there's a whole shop over there that you guys don't have access to that I will now have access to. And two, I want to meet and hang around actors so I know what the hell they're like as human beings so I can... I'm going to need to convince them to do things. <laughs> you know, I'm going to need to speak a language that they will understand. Same thing with I'm a big film music nerd and I've produced a few movies and I'm always the composer whisperer because I actually know what to tell a composer. The other thing I want to point out, it's a subtext in the story you just told. A lot of people, you know, they kickstart something, they have a massive success or even any kind of success they use the budget to just about fulfill the thing that they did. And then they, they, you know, then they buy themselves a bicycle or a trip to Europe. <laughs> and, you know, uh, on my Kickstarters and clearly on yours, you, you know, you said, oh, we have extra money. Let's go to New York Comic Con. Let's feed the project. You know, I'm on my third. We're, we haven't yet done the third Kickstarter on the Drawing Blood project <laughs> I have with Eastman. But we've taken, we've made, done two two Kickstarters for over a hundred thousand dollars. We have taken our, we've been paid for our pages that we've done, but we're, we don't actually, we don't, I think we can do the third volume without doing a Kickstarter until after we're almost done. Yeah. 
because we haven't spent the money on anything. You know, we haven't gone, you know, there's 20 grand sitting in there. Why don't we just grab it? You know, and a lot of people do that, you know, and the, the keeping, you know, being a good gambler and going, you know what, let it ride, keep the money on the table toward, towards the next thing, towards the next gamble we're going to take is a huge thing that a lot of people don't do. They're so, there's that I won the lottery feeling where they're like, hey, there's 25 grand left over from this thing. Let's, you know, let me buy a car. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah, or, you know, or put a down payment on a car and make another comic book, you know, that might also, which will make you more money. Have you ever siphoned these projects into a traditional publishing world? Is Can can someone go to, a, or even in a self-publishing world, can you, someone go to a website and order volume one of Skies of Fire? Not besides our own web store, not yet. So mm -hmm. this the theme of the past year. Um, I I spent a lot of time. I, I up until last year, I shipped everything myself, right? And you know we have uh, thousands of 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 goods to ship out per campaign, and it just reached a point where it was getting untenable. Where I was just getting fed up with with packing stuff, um, and. I was like, okay, I don't, I don't want to do this anymore. I, and not only that, but I shouldn't be doing this. I should be focusing my time on growing my presence and heralding our comics and all of that stuff. So I, I spent all of last year really learning how to work with um, logistics companies and warehousing and stuff like that. Um, so the idea was let's do that and let's learn about um, how to get that up and running so we can have a, a seamless experience where I'm spending the time just promoting our, our website and getting traffic there so people can buy our books directly and have it shipped directly to them, uh, you know, business to consumer style, right? We've looked into distribution in the past with Diamond um, and with some others, and there are some really big kind of hurdles with it. Number one, it's like, okay, do we go through with a traditional publisher? And we've been pitched a lot too. You know, I've taken lots of meetings with a bunch of bunch of publishers um, over the years. And for one, like, we're just slow. That's one of the the characteristics of of, of the work that we do is like we're extremely detailed. We 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 want to make like comics that look amazing that are the highest quality possible but as a result we're slow right we're, we're we publish comics uh, for skies of fire we publish like one or two issues a year for for eight years um and the entire time we were aiming to complete the story and we would take meetings and they would be like okay so where does the story go or like you know we'll talk back circle back when we've completed it so that was always like a big obstacle um and you know we've we finally completed it and it's a big milestone for us um and then with distribution with diamond it just like we were looking at how much we could take on Kickstarter, right? Which is which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. You pretty much get like 80 cents on the dollar uh, doing stuff on Kickstarter, if not more, versus Diamond or going through any distributor. And we were like, okay, we're going to get like 20 cents on the dollar if we if we go through there at that, right? So it just didn't make sense. And it was like, okay, well, then that means we need to sell like you know four or five times of the amount to make the same amount of money in terms of mm -hmm. our take. Um, and, you know, from our little like operation standpoint, that didn't make sense for, for the longest time. It, it may make more sense now um, that we're doing this. And then with tabletop games, it certainly makes more sense because um, the tabletop distribution scene is, is, is much, much more robust than, than the mm -hmm. comics one. Where in the comics one, you're dealing with uh, basically one, now two, two distributors, right? And they mm -hmm. kind of control everything. And as a result, there's not much competition because there's not that much competition. There's a lot of like bureaucracy and a lot of just bloat in, in the entire process, right? So that's yeah. like kind of tough to deal with. But in 
in tabletop, there's there's a lot of distributors. There's there's a lot of players in the game, and there's there's a lot of people who are consolidating for those distributors. So there's a lot of players basically, and that that results in in a more healthy kind of economic system, I think. So we're experimenting with um, tabletop distribution for the first time with the Wild Sea. So I'm debuting at Gen Con next week. Basically, I'm flying out on Tuesday. We're hoping to have a big show there, but we've signed with a distributor called Solidary Fun Again Games. Um, and they are going to be bringing our books to the distributors who are then going to be bringing it to retail. Um, so that's like sort of my big experiment with distribution for the first time. And if that works out, uh, I'll be I'll be stoked because one of my goals for the year is to get all of my games into every hobby store that I can. Right. Mm -hmm. And if I can do that, that, that would be amazing. Um, and then as far as like the books go, like we thought about trying to go for more traditional distributors. Right. Um, but in order to reach that threshold, you need about five titles, right? You need about five books, not comics, like not, not floppies, but actual books. And we're, we're getting there, but it has been a process in getting there. Um, so that might be something we explore in the future. Uh, a lot of it is also like bandwidth. Like a big theme for me is like, you know, I'm, I'm still creating, I'm still writing, but then I'm also like trying to scale the business. So I'm always like yeah. kind of tugged in either direction, you know? And I'm like, yeah. Uh, are you going to be a creator or, or are you going to be a CEO? And there's yeah. so much bandwidth, right? Yeah. That's interesting. So, I mean, so, so where you're thinking it is like, I mean, cause here was my question from moment one is like, what, you know, if you were just going to take skies of fire to a, a publisher and, and, and be part of their line and the whole nine yards, what in God's name can they offer you? Like I, I, I don't think it's much. I mean, all of these places they have their own audience, and it's good to in, introduce to a new audience. But, but the deals, the deals are terrible. Um, uh, you, you know, you're you're giving up rights. You're you're give, giving up all these things, and it's ultimately not worth it. It's almost like, you know, you take your you, you do your action lab book. So you know. You know, it, it it buys you a little um, it buys you a little success on Kickstarter. That's really what it does. You know, you don't need that. Um, uh, uh, so what do they have to bring you? But so it sounds like I mean, you are looking to to build a slate, almost like a mortal did, and and do your own thing. Is that is that, is that what you're looking at? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the pathway that I've yeah. been on for for a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, like again, it, it's always like about the practicality of it, right? Like. Like, of course, I would love to be a published writer and I would love to have like the image comics, you know, be a dark horse writer or whatever. And that, that was always kind of the dream. But then like in learning about the actual like economics of it, like, um, you know, I, I caught a I caught a great wave. I was really fortunate to catch this wave of Kickstarter comments right, 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 right as it was cresting. Right. And I had the fortune of of being um, one of the one of the first like original comics on there. And, and, you know, a lot of that is timing, like for sure. A lot of that is timing. Like I just I, I happen to be starting a project at the right time and had the right project, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but because of the way the economics worked out as a result of that crest, uh, it just never made sense. Right. Like learning more about the industry. And that was always something mm -hmm. I, I guess like people are always like, Oh, you're like, you, you know, you're rather sharp on the business. And I, I think I'm all right at it, but I just like ask a lot of questions at the end of the day. Right. And I'm like, I just want to know how things work. Um, and then in hearing like, you know, publishers pitch to me and I was like, okay, so how many copy, how many units, who does it go to? Okay. So distributors take this much and then how much goes there and what's the split and like doing the, the napkin math in, in my head, even from like issue one, issue two, it never made sense. Right. I was just like, that doesn't yeah. like, I would be leaving money on the table if I if I 
if I went there as opposed to just publishing it myself. So like that was always the conceit. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, what can you offload from me then, right? Can you uh, handle printing for me? It's like, yes, but at what cost, right? Can you mm -hmm. uh, promote the book? And the answer is kind of yes and kind of no, right? It's that's like, yeah, like, yeah. no, yeah. I'm going to have to be that's doing always, that. That's always the worst part is that you yeah. can't, like, it's so hard. I can't even imagine the contract <laughs> that would quantify I need you to take out at least a one a full page ad in previews every month. I need your I need to be interviewed in these five websites at minimum every month. Like, you know, like that's the whole game and that's the thing that the independent person has a hard the hardest time doing for themselves is getting noticed. And even, you know, like it it ended up working out okay for us. We didn't lose money on it and we made a little money on it. But my my Kickstarter comics, Drawing Blood and Ragdolls, we went through Diamond after we kickstarted them. It was Kevin Eastman's new comic. Like, take a moment to absorb the new comic from the guy who created the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There is one review of the first issue on the on Comic Book Roundup. One yeah. review of the new... And, you know, partially that was because we self-published. And yeah. I will say that we foolishly thought that like comics journalists would go, holy shit, this is the most exciting new thing to come along. But we didn't. The funniest thing to me, and I absolutely take this as my own failure, is we released a new comic by me and Kevin Eastman, and it did not say along the top, from the co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Like we were so like, ah, we don't, we don't need to do that. Why do we want to mar our beautiful cover with that? And it's like, we released the fucking art house film through 20th century Fox and we're shocked that no one came to see it, you know? Uh, and we're going to, we're going to go another route with future things, but it's just the, the only thing a big company gets you is you're, you're earlier in that phone book. That is the previews. You're not in the back, you're in the front and you have that thing in the upper left-hand corner, but also people are more generally aware that you released your comic. There's like yeah. sort of no way around that. It, it, it's this wrestling match I'm having where it's like, I mean, I, you know, my, my day job, I write film and TV. Right. And, and it, it pays pretty well. And so I, I, you know, again, you only have so much bandwidth. Right. And so, and so do I take, you know, do I take the book at aftershock, you know, uh, and, and basically get paid garbage and give my rights away. And it's hard to do. You know what I'm saying? It's not a very good deal for me. I mean, you can argue, you know, again, David Peppos did his Aftershock book and, and, and he ate his vegetables, right? And then he's writing for Marvel next, you know? And so if you want to write for Marvel, it's something you got to kind of do, right? Uh, um, you, you need some version of that, of your Aftershock shock book, your, your stepping stone. But it is very hard to, you know, and, and um, I mean, there's a freedom in what you're doing, right? And, and what I normally do, I mean, it's like, a, I mean, I, I can these conversations I'm having now, I will get more notes from on an outline from a junior editor at a third tier publishing company than I will from like Justin Lin and, and three universal executives on a $250 million movie. I'm I, like, no lie, you know? Um, and it's, it's, it's insane to me. And so, so the, 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 the comics business is twisted and weird and wacky and, and particularly if you are in, you know, I mean, you guys are in a great place, 
ultimate freedom. You got you, you got a, a rabid fan base. You got money rolling in. Uh, uh, the ability to do whatever you want to do next, right? And so the idea that you would you would submit <laughs> to um, to like the insanity of 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 what goes on at most of these publishers is it's very difficult to swallow. And I mean, it's it's interesting to it's interesting to hear your thought process. You know, I mean, you're you're like, well. You know, I do. I, I, I mean, you understand the aftershock thing. You understand, like, okay, well, you know, I mean, maybe you do want to write Iron Man, and if you want to write Iron Man, you you you, you probably have to, you probably have to do something at some point, right? But mm-hmm. but I can see how it's so, it's so difficult, you know. Um, uh, and and and, and here is the other thing. Here is the other thing. It's like, I mean, the, the the question that we always come back to on the show is why the fuck is the comics business like this, right? And and really, the only answer is like, oh well, it's been like this for decades. So, yeah. um, so so it's how it is. And um, I think what 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 creators like you are 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 are, are proving, uh, what creators like you have proven over the last decade or something like that, and 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 the the volume has really been turned up on this the last couple of years, you know, particularly with the pandemic and 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 the distribution issues and all of these things, is that it doesn't have to be like that. Is that um, you know we are we are in a way where music was. Um, you know, when Napster was introduced, you know what I'm saying? It's like, we are, we are at, you know, we're, I don't know if we're a mid radical change or if we're right at the beginning of radical change, but, um, but you know, I, that, that is the thing. I don't know when people can go to Kickstarter and, 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 and do what you do or, or even do what, you know, uh, Avalonian and Eastman did, or, or just do what I do, which is, you know, which, uh, you know, w- w- which isn't, you know, isn't as loud and, and crazy and glorious as, as, as all that. I, I don't, I don't know how you take these shitty deals. I don't know how you submit to the, to the notes. I don't know how you, you know, I, I don't know how you let people lock you in a creative cage like that. It's tough. Yeah. I always view it like, um, I think we're still in the post-apocalyptic phase of comics, right? Like we, like we got nuked in the '90s. Like we straight up got nuked, right? Yeah. Like if you look, I mean, like Jim Lee, those cats, like they, they were making hundreds of thousands of dollars per like issue, right? Like yeah, yeah. the money was good, and like it's the numbers are astounding, right? I always, um, I always point to like you know what what the single best comic was like selling issue wise, and like. 1994 like amazing spider-man right with like todd mcfarlane selling like millions of co- uh, copies or like 800,000 copies a month and mm-hmm. now like the top comic is selling like 100,000 a month yeah. right like there's that that happened and that yeah. that happened and and the industry hasn't recovered from it yet and uh you know who knows if it if it ever will or or really because it's like it's such a weird 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 ecosystem because on the one hand you have uh, you have the two big corporate over, overlords, right? Marvel and DC, and you know they they obviously are are making tons and tons of money, but not necessarily off of a comics directly. It's an IP farm, right? And they're treating yeah. it as an IP farm, and that's 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 and it's worked out great for that because you know all of the all of the Marvel, all the DC comics, they're all they're all adapted from comics that came out in the last twenty right. years, right? They're, yeah. There and they have that ability to rewrite because of it that that just improves the creative process. Um, but in terms of like the stakeholders, like the editors at Marvel and DC, then what they're left with is just just beat the other guy, right? Beat yeah, DC, right. beat Marvel. And that's a really, really low bar because you're talking about an industry that's just like 
fighting over scraps, right? So what do they do? They they do stuff like variant covers, right? They do stuff like relaunches, right? Because mm -hmm. they're not trying to win. They're not trying to grow the segment as a whole. They're yeah. just trying to beat the other guys. That's their only directive. Um, that's all they're judged um, you know, the, for their performance. And that's the, you know, I talk about this a lot, but the, you're both Marvel and DC are connected to the biggest entertainment conglomerates in the world. And what they could do you know, I always say someone walking out of the first Avengers movie should have been faced with a kiosk with a bunch of Jim Starlin comics in it that they could buy to learn about Thanos and the Infinity Stones and what was coming. Like you could have sold people George Perez Wonder Woman walking out of Wonder the original one, you know, the Wonder Woman movie with Gal Gadot. Um, they control all of the talk shows. You know, when when someone from the boys goes on a talk show. Send Garth Ennis with him. You know, uh, Garth can talk and you might, you know, you if you talk about the comic book and not just the TV show, and you know, those Dynamite has sold zillions of those trade paperbacks based on the Amazon TV show, but they haven't, like, but they've sold boys comics to fans of the TV show, The Boys. They haven't made new, who are also comics fans, they haven't made new comics fans out of people watching the boys. That's the, I think that's the part that's missing with all of this synergy. You know, no one involved with Paramount Plus is saying, go to your comic book store and buy an IDW Star Trek comic. No one. You know, there's no, the end of an episode of Star Trek Picard doesn't say for more adventures of, Star Trek, of Captain Picard. Check out this month's issue of Picard Mirror War from IDW. Like there are, it sounds goofy, but it's the weirdest thing in the world for an entertainment conglomerate to pretend like an entire product line doesn't exist. Like they'll they'll do a product placement for the the phone that they you know for the the car brand that they've made a deal with. They'll do a part product placement for anything else, but God forbid they tell you you know what you'd also like. Uh, you're watching Doom Patrol? Buy a DC comic. That might that might scratch this itch. And particularly, I always think like when the season finale rolls around, it's like, well, that's all the Doom Patrol Doom Patrol we have for you this year. Go buy a Grant Morrison comic now, mm -hmm. and you will get this flavor that you enjoy, and you'll have it sitting on your couch. You know, and that's the I to me the the it's malpractice on a global scale the degree to which these giant companies are just interested in, as you say, main turn, you know, it's comic books are like the area of 50, you know, area 51 of the entertainment industry. They're a secret base in the middle of the desert, but a couple of thousand people know about, but God forbid you tell <laughs> people about the products coming out of there. It's mm -hmm. crazy. You, you almost said area 54. That's the, yeah. uh, the, the alien dance club. It's the alien dance club. Yeah. I had a moment <laughs> where I was trying to remember which was which. Yeah, but, it's, yeah, it's so it's insane. One of the things I wanted to ask you, Ray, is how did you go about building that audience on Kickstarter? Like, how did you get people to the page? I mean, to me, looking at it, it's it's got a, a steampunk vibe to it. It's got a Mobius vibe to it visually. Um, did you connect to groups that were interested in it? Like, how did you get, how did you find these people who are buying your comics? Yeah, no, um, not like we... We kind of did. We, I mean, we, we got really lucky. That's for sure. Um, we, you know, we tried to make the best 
possible comic we could. And I think a lot of people resonated with that, especially that first campaign. Um, I think that it was a bit easier back then too, because there wasn't as much competition It was easier That's to stand true. out. And I think that um, we were just able to, to build on that too. You know, we, we, we used to incentivize our existing audience by, um, by giving them the digital copy of the next issue and being like, Hey, here's the digital we're, we're launching next week for, for, if you want to print. Right. Um, and that's how we would, we would get people back, but just kind of like the old school way, you know, like a mailing list. Like we, we made sure to maintain our mailing list and and to email people about new campaigns. I actually owe um, a debt of gratitude to uh, Madeline Holly Rosling of um, Boston Metaphysical Society because way back when um, I was at a con talking to her before we launched our second Kickstarter, and this is like my second or third con ever. And I was like, I don't know what we're going to do for the second issue of skies of fire. Like I, we have it mostly done, but what do I do? Do I just host it on our, our web store and, and go from there? And she looked at me like, silly. he's like, no, no dummy. She didn't say dummy, but like, no, go back on Kickstarter. Like, what do you mean? Go back on Kickstarter. You know, why would you, why would you not go back on Kickstarter? And like, that was a huge blind spot in my, you know, I was like, huh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, and I'm so glad I did because we were able to parlay the 500 into 800 and the 800 into 1200, the 1200 into 1500. Well, yeah. And that's such an important point with Kickstarter. I mean, you go the traditional publishing route and it's all about attrition, right? You know, I mean, you, you, you might, you might start out with 5,000, but the next issue is 2,500 and the issue after that is 1200. And, you know, until um, it is no longer, uh, you know, tenable uh, from a financial uh, standpoint to, uh, to do the book. Right. Um, however, with Kickstarter, you start out with 500 and then you go to 800 and then you go to 1200 and um and um and there is this fierce loyalty on the uh, on the platform right i mean it's it's uh it's the same people coming back over and over again and they're telling their friends and new people are are tripping into it and um and they're like wait you know wait a minute 1200 people are, are backing this like i gotta see what it's all about right um it, it it the the world moves in reverse on kickstarter the economics move in reverse and that's um that's awesome. You know, and again, like, so, so, so why would you do it the other way? Why? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, at the time, like I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly like Charlie, Charlie's really great at, at giving me credit for that. Right. That's what he was like. You, you, you showed the way you trailblaze that like you were one of the first to actually build uh, a series. But again, like I didn't think to do it until Madeline basically was like shook me and was like, go back on Kickstarter. Right. Because I had no, I, I had nothing to look at. At the time, yeah. that's why I didn't consider. I was like, "Well, I did the first issue, right?" And a lot of people did first issues back then, but not a lot of people did second issues, right? Yeah. There was like hardly anybody who was doing a continuing series or whatever. So then it was like, "Well, how do I do the the second the second comic, and how do I make it grow?" And and like I, I we were fortunate, and and we proved that that could happen, right? So that was sort yeah. of our main contribution, I think, to Kickstarter comics, like you could build this, and like you said, like have it go in reverse to. The traditional direct market publishing model which is which is awesome which is really really grateful um yeah and then you know i i, I wrote about that on our blog way back when and that's that's sort of how i met charlie he he came up to me at a con and he was like hey how do i how do i do kickstarter comics and i was talking to him at the show and explaining them and i was like you know i i wrote a series on on the blog explaining how um and then same thing with a lot of the other creators like felipe cagno of uh 
feeling cursed. He, he you know, he was a backer from from way back when. Um, and you know, he he sort of copied what we were doing and then just kind of blew it up out of the water with with like the variant covers and his total gross. And then uh Curtis Clo too, like I was hanging out with Curtis and he was like, Yeah, um, I don't know if you remember this, but I came up to you in Long Beach Comic Con like way back when I did I did Long Beach Comic Con like one time, like my first year basically. So he was yeah. there like right at the beginning too. Um <clears throat> so I'm really grateful. And and to your point about like why would you sell the rights? A lot of these these uh these deals that that these Kickstarter creators are going, my my peers, they're they're getting like Curtis, you know, his deal with with Dark Horse, like they're publishing the the soft cover trade paperbacks, which is great because yeah. that gets them um access to all of their distribution right and i'm sure it's only going to be a matter of time before he starts writing for for marvel or dc or whoever mm -hmm. but he has it so that he can do the hardcover edition on kickstarter just like charlie did with white ash right like yeah, he yeah. has the hard hardcover deluxe edition but but scout is doing the the other trades and the floppies and whatnot and that's really where like a lot of the money is right like yeah. the hardcover trade is like where you can you can make make quite a bit of money um as a creator so it's great it's like you know comic publishers are adapting to a certain extent right they're seeing that's like well well the economics of it don't make sense like when i was looking at it i was like it, it, it don't make sense like why would i why would i do that it just it's me leaving money on the table but they're recognizing it too and now what they're offering is complementary right and it's, yeah, yeah. it's adjusting to the to the new paradigm and that's really cool to see as well. yeah if they're if, if, if they're not going to take your rights if they're not going to um yeah i mean if they're if it is going to be complementary if it can be I, you know, I mean, it, it is a different version of the book. I mean, that, that's definitely what Charlie has done, right, with, with with Scout Comics, where it's like, okay, well, different covers and, um, and you know, it's on different paper. We're adding new content. Um, it's packaged differently. It's, uh, you know, it, it, it becomes a... It becomes the new DV. It becomes the new DVD with director's commentary or whatever. You know right. what I'm saying? You know, th th this ends up being interesting. The problem is, like, here's the thing: is that there there are publishers like Scout that that, that are smart about it, being like, okay, well, well, you know, obviously Kickstarter is an amazing proving ground, right? And and, and so if it was if it was popular on Kickstarter, it's probably going to be pretty damn popular in a comic shop. So how do we how do we get these these guys and gals into our stable? Well, you have to be able to offer them something. Right or, or 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 at least at least not be detrimental to you know the the what they've already built right and 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 that's what Scout has done is Scout has come in and they are a partner uh, uh, they are an augmenter rather than a well give us all your rights because because here's the thing is you know my uh, my friend David Pepos, I was talking with him um, uh, at, at Comic Con and he's got this he's got this comic Boz which has been a huge success on on Kickstarter and it's a great book and there are a lot of people that are after it. Um, and the deals that he's looking at are pretty fucking piss poor, you know, <laughs> and, and just, just over and over again, I, I, I can't, uh, I can't count the number of times that Pepo said over the weekend, why would I take that? <laughs> why would I take that? You know, and, and he's kind of waiting for the, you know, he's, he's smart. He's being smart. He's waiting for the right, uh, you know, the right fit. And, it, and obviously you guys have done that because it's been, you know, it's been since 2011 or whatever. And you guys haven't, you know, you guys, you know, haven't, haven't taken the deal. And I'm sure that, I'm sure every month somebody comes with a new deal. Um, uh, you know, it's um, it's just, you know, people, uh, sometimes people aren't that patient, you know? Um, yeah. No, and I, you know, one of the things that I discovered across working in every genre that the, the you'll be in a store with all of the other things is the, that's always the thing that they offer you because it's your ego and it's where you get screwed. When I was a film, when I was trying to place 
you know, motion pictures I had produced into a distribution pipeline. The minute it was a theatrical release, you weren't going to make a dime off it. <laughs> like that was the, like that was, uh, I, I produced a record. The deal with the record company was like, yeah, you get 50% of all royalties. If it's digital only, you'll get 17% if it's in record stores. And I said, first, what's a record store? Uh, I'm old enough to remember them, but they, this was 2009. I was like, you're selling me a product that does not exist. And they would only give 17, even on the digital, if you took the record store deal. And I said, I guess we're not going to be in record stores. I will take my 50%, please. They still never paid me a royalty, by the way. Uh, luckily, I have those rights back now. But it's the same thing. And it's the same thing with comic books. You want to be in the store. You want to be in the store with all of the pretty things. And that doesn't mean you're going to get treated well. And that doesn't, you know, you might not get ordered. And you're signing away all sorts of rights you don't want to sign. I mean, I, I will not name any names, but I just tried to make a deal with a comic book company for a creator-owned thing. And they seemed a little outraged that we read the contract and had questions. Mm -hmm. It was almost like, when no one asks. It's like, really? I kind of feel like... And, you know, what we were asking for wasn't uncommon or unusual or anything, but they seemed like genuinely like, like, oh, I'm sorry, you're supposed to just sign this thing and get it back to us. We don't, we don't want any back and forth about the, about the terms, you know? And I'm like, I don't know what universe you live in, but I'm, I'm not 18 and drawing this stuff in my basement. I, I actually am an adult and a serious business person. So yeah, the lawyer's going to read it. Sorry. Comic companies are really bad about it. They they do not expect any you know any volley, any give and take uh, on any of it. I mean, in, in the entertainment business, it's 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 common. You know, uh, yeah. I, I don't think I've signed a contract in the film business that didn't have you know twenty back and forths with uh, yeah. and but with, it's, with, with, with lawyers. But it, but, yeah. but it is that thing of like, isn't this the job of your dreams? How dare you? Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, there are so many people that will sign the shitty contract without that's what I mean, yeah. Without looking that it that it ends up not being worth their time. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, their their good situations, their good deals killed because, you know, again, their lawyer had a few comments, you know. Uh um it's it's uh it's it's rough. And you know, it's another reason why kind of wading into into these waters sucks, you know, why it's very tough because it is very hard to get a a good and and reasonable deal, you know. Yeah. Well, I just checked, and I, I, while we've been talking, Skies of Fire, I think made another five hundred bucks. Uh, so that's good. Uh, I just I went and the page updated again. Uh, you're at two hundred percent success, a little over two hundred percent, based on what you have. But the, you know, why not keep going, folks? Go and go and pledge to uh, Skies of Fire. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, I wanted to, you know, end on a positive note. Where what's the next step for Skies of Fire? So Vince and I desperately need to take a writer's retreat and just hash out like we have an outline, but we need to just uh, dig deep on the creative process, which is something I'm really looking forward to. Because, again, like one of my main challenges is just like balancing between like trying to put on the CEO hat and like doing the publishing side of things, balancing all these projects and making time for creative stuff. Um, so I'm hoping to take some time out early next year to do that and uh, mm -hmm. hopefully come back with uh, the sequel and, and start hashing that out for Skies of Fire. 
as far as Mythopia goes, um, we have a bunch of stuff in the pipeline. You know, uh, the Wild Sea, like I said, I'm going to Gen Con. I'm debuting that game. It should be uh, a wild time. should be great. And then I have another game coming out, Cyberpunk. We have we have more campaigns lined up for Glow, um, some comics that I've been working on behind the scenes for a long time. It's just just, just trying to get everything out there. And, and again, trying to uh, become more and more of a legitimate company, not just for ourselves, but others in terms of distribution, in terms of like what we can offer and hopefully be, you know, offer some, a better deal for, for creators, uh, out there. Um, cause yeah, I think, and, and to, to your earlier point, David, I think it's all, it is ego. You know what I mean? Like we, none of us got into this because we wanted to make money, right? Like we were all those foolish dreamers who thought yeah. like, yeah, I want to, I want to make art and like, yeah, in the back of our minds, I'm sure we all thought we would be like heck of a successful Nick Spielberg, right? When we when we first started, um, but I think like you know what I did in terms of like these publishers and their deals and looking at the economics, like it's a bit hypocritical for me to say because I, I did I did that for for my comics, right? And I'm like, well, I can make more money on Kickstarter, but it's not like I did that or any of us did that for our careers, right? Which right. is like what the practical thing is to do is like, wait, what is my total potential earnings and if we had all done that we would all be consultants by now yeah, right yeah. but we but we're not doing that we're not doing that right. because because that would kill us because that's not we don't have us in us but a lot of people people get into this industry not because of the money but i think that blinds them a lot of times to how much they can be screwed over by, yeah. by everyone mm -hmm. you know so yeah yeah no and you wanted like i spent over 20 years as a professional film editor and I learned a lot because that job is mostly fixing other people's storytelling mistakes and, you know, learning how to structure a, a narrative with, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a, a bunch of unmarked puzzle pieces that do not fit together and have not been cut to fit together. And you have to fire up the jigsaw and make it work. And uh, that was very useful to me, but after a, years and years and years of doing it i'm so burned out on other people's stories and i'm very glad that i get to do my own now uh and that's uh you know that 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 i finally have a job that uses what i can really bring to the table instead of my ability to help you with what you brought to the table mm -hmm. and that's uh you know that's a far more satisfying way to do it and i think it's the greatest thing about the 21st century, I mean, man, I spent the 90s trying to pry money off of millionaires to make low budget movies. And it was a miserable, that part was a miserable experience. Uh, they were all guys like your former boss. And uh, it was exhausting. And then in 2012, 2013, I did a Kickstarter and an Indiegogo for a movie. And we didn't have to pry money out of anybody but fans of the actors that we had cast in the movie um and that was such a better experience um than having that and that you know i i think that and the the what's the word the uh the streamlining of the materials you know the fact that my iphone represents what would have been a million dollar post-production facility in the 90s and actually can output higher quality video than a bay i was spending 700 dollars an hour to sit in uh, that's some wild stuff. And we're all very lucky to be part of that revolution. One last thing I, we want to get from you. We don't have to, you know, spell it out here. We'll put it in the show notes, but that blog about how to do a successful comics Kickstarter is probably going to be very, very interesting to our listeners. 
is that still yeah. in existence somewhere? Yeah, it is. It is. I think a lot of the the information is is still good. Like I said, I think Charlie, maybe a couple of others, but Charlie was like my best student. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like he actually oh, was like, yeah. He, yeah, he came up to me and he's like, I read it. I read it and I'm doing it. And, you know, now he he's he's doing it. He's clearly yeah. very much. It, 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 it's funny, the, the lineage of this stuff, because Charlie will fully admit that he, you know, sort of studied at your feet in terms of the stuff. And I, I, I most definitely studied at Charlie's feet. And the, the funny thing now is that there are people studying at my feet. You know, the stuff gets handed down. Yeah. It is a gift that we can kind of give each other. And, and it's the beauty of the comics community is that yeah. we all lift each other up. We all help each other. We, we pass the, the knowledge down. So, um, so, so, so I learned from you, uh, uh, through Charlie. Uh, so, so thank you very much for that. And I, I, I feel like I've been deputized. I feel like I, it is now my responsibility to, oh, it totally know, is. When, when a creator comes to me and says, Hey, how did you do that? I have to say, well, you have to take the time and be like, well, you know, this is, this is what I learned, you know, um, yeah, all, all yeah. elements of show business are Kafka esque. It's always the castle. It's always where the hell's the front door. You show up, you're like, I swear they want me in there, but where the hell's the front door? And you do everything you can to find the door into the castle. And if you're inside the castle, it is absolutely your responsibility to open doors and go over here, over here, Joseph K. I got an open door for you. Come on in. Let me show you where to where how this works. Let me show you what what the doors that actually open and what the doors that are locked look like. And uh, you know, if you don't, if you're not doing that, you're failing at one of the most important parts of being a professional artist. You know, because it's because there is no, you know, it's not the dark ages. We can't go, well, I take on apprentices in my shop and, you know, put on an apron and here's your hammer and I will show you how to art. And that's there. There is no there. There is no pipeline like that. There's only this. There's only your blog. You know, that's that's the door that people can find. As opposed to just sitting at home and going, I have no clue how to how to crack into this thing. So, uh, Skies of Fire currently going. Do you have an, any other Kickstarters coming up after that for uh, games or anything? Yes, uh, I think it's probably in September. Let's say it's always later, so it's always it's always much later right. than what I always say. But uh, we have one for Glow coming up, and that'll probably round out our year. Um, Mm -hmm. And after that, uh, I think I'll be at LA Comic Con. Uh, Charlie convinced me to booth there. He was Good. like, "Oh, it's great!" So I'll I'll be boothing there, I think. Um, and then, yeah, and then we'll see what happens next year. And I, 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 how how many Kickstarters are you doing a year? Do you think? I'm trying to do four. I, okay. I don't think I can do more than four. Uh, it's hard, think, hard, think, hard to fulfill anymore, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. One a quarter. One a quarter yeah. is is about sounds about right um, yeah. for for us. Um, yeah. Maybe like five if it's a small thing. Like uh, like Kickstarter has this thing called Zine Quest for really small RPGs, like smaller projects. You know that that could expand it. But yeah, about mm -hmm. four a quarter, four a year, one a quarter. That's very interesting. And, and where can people find you on the internet, Ray? They can find me at our website, www.myth.works. They can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Mythopians. That, at, that's at M-Y-T-H-O-P-O-E-I-A-N-S. <laughs> well, we'll put it in the show notes. So <laughs> it's a mouthful, yeah. Uh, but, but people but can click the link. 
And uh, Ryland, where can the kids find you online? Speaking of mouthfuls, uh, I am at Ryland Grant on all forms of social media. That is R-Y-L-E-N-D-G-R-A-N-T. I always spell it because it's not a real name. My parents drunkenly arranged letters and settled me with it, and now I have to spell it for you. Uh, but my uh, my fits of business, the Ringo Award-winning Aberrant, the uh, four-time Ringo-nominated uh, Banjax, and uh, my tokusatsu joint, Suicide Jockeys, those can be found in fine comic shops everywhere and via Amazon. And I always want to say Comixology, but Comixology is no more, as we covered. Uh, my Kickstarter books, uh, the Astral Projection Thriller, The Jump, and the Fargo West Crime Drama, The Peacekeepers, can be found via my uh, Backerkit site right now. If you go to thejump2.backerkit.com, that's the jump one word and the number two, thejump2.backerkit.com. You can find that uh, stuff, as well as signed copies of, uh, of all the other uh, comic shop books, Rare Con Variants. It's a one-stop Ryland Grant shop, uh, so check that out. And um, if you miss the Fashing Origins uh, Kickstarter, you can go to immortal-studios.com and order that. Um, and of course, look for uh, you know in comic shops very soon via Dynamite. So uh, bring us on yeah. home, uh, Avalone. I can be found at davidavalonefreelance.com that has the tendrils off to all of the other things I do. I always, you know, I sometimes say that... Uh, Having a last name you got teased for in school is a very useful thing in the age of Google, because I am the first nine pages of David Avalone's. Before you get to Lieutenant David Avalone, a retired military officer and a lawyer who seems like a very nice guy. But I am very easy to find on the internet for that reason. I'm on all the social medias, including the TikTok, but I have not taken up twerking just yet. Um, what else? I have uh, Elvira, and we're in the middle of Elvira in Horrorland, issue three, which is the alien... Uh, parody issue comes out on August 10th, as far as I know. Sometime after that will be issue four, the Freddy Krueger issue, and issue five, the David Cronenberg issue, which I'm writing right now, and it's a lot of fun. I also just finished writing two more tales for Savage Tales, number two. have no idea when they're going to drop that, but I saw the first three pages of a John Carter and Deja Thoris story I wrote, and they look friggin' gorgeous. So uh, I recommend picking that up when it hits. Again, thank you so much for uh, listening. Thank you so much for joining us, Ray. And uh, we'll see you on the next exciting episode of The Writer's Block. See you soon, guys. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on The Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>